日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Last chapter of the book is、uh, Instruments of Change,、uh, Organizational Technology and the Consolidation of Regional Power in Japan, 1333 to 1600,、uh, by Thomas Conlon. And、uh, of course,、uh, this is one that's right up my alley because it, it talks about、uh, you know, organization for, for warfare,、uh, and some of it is, is technological.、Uh, he does address、uh, guns and so forth. But it's interesting how he does it because it's not just you know, your standard. Discussion about, oh, well, guns are more advanced, so they must have been better. It's,、uh, he looks at starting in the、uh, Muromachi period and with the,、uh, the Namboku Cho, you know, the, the war between the northern and southern courts.、Um, he's looking at、uh, data from different documents that record wounds. And he actually follows some of.、Um, Uh, some, some research done by、uh, Suzuki Masaya on the same topic,、uh, where he looks at you know, what the percentages were of, of certain wounds、uh, in combat、um, and, and finds that, you know, that the, it kind of traces the way that,、uh, that this changes and therefore is a reflection of how the technology changes. You know, and on one page here, he, he says arrows caused 99% of all projectile wounds through the 1300s. And continued to inflict 58% of all such wounds through 1600, even though firearms were introduced to Japan in 1466.、Um, so he's using the early date、um, of the Ryukyu gun that shows up in the,、uh, in the capital during a procession.、So、guns didn't displace bows until 1600 when they inflicted 80% of all skirmishing casualties. So, you know, kind of challenges the way that we look at it, and especially a lot of people look at Nagashino.、Um, You know, gee, I don't know why I'd focus on that particular battle、um, as, as this you know, watershed moment where it, it really wasn't. Also, you know, he, he kind of talks about the, the changes between、uh, in actual,、um, not skirmishing combat, but you know, hand to hand combat,、uh, where prior to pretty much the Onin War, you know, the majority of it was. was Archery、uh, from horseback, but then,、uh, and、uh, you know, while、uh, foot soldiers would have pikes, they, wouldn't, they weren't used to great effect, and, and most of the wounds didn't come from them. Whereas once you hit the Onin War and you have、uh, large groups of, of infantry, then pikes become more efficient, and therefore we see a rise of,、uh, of wounds appearing due to, to pikes. Um, and then he talks about, of course, you know, what, why are there these changes on the battlefield? What are the organizational causes that change this?、Uh, and it, it has a lot to do with、um, uh, the ways that armies were raised and, and taxes were appropriated to,、uh, to help、uh, pay for、uh, these things. And then you know, the, the tactical、uh, employment of them, then, of course, is affected by that. So, yeah,、uh, one, one page, on page 140 here, he says uh, uh, organizational technology rather than the adoption of the gun proved critical in instigating change. Improvements in the ability to provision armies enabled armies to occupy regions indefinitely. Once troops trained together in massive formations, they became proficient in using pikes. 
This allowed them to defeat horsemen on the open battlefield, a task that scattered bands of sword-wielding men could never accomplish. Uh, so, you know, we, we see that development, uh, you know, earlier than guns showing up, uh, and it kind of signals that, that shift to infantry being a more important piece of, of the battle than, than uh, horse, you know, mounted, mounted warriors like it was in the, uh, in the earlier periods. Uh, so, you know, this, this kind of backs up if you go back to um, Stephen Marillo, who we've talked about before, you know, backs up his argument that you had to have uh, strong government uh, in the, in, or, you know, strong public authority uh, before you could utilize uh, things, you know, for the technological changes like guns and, and, and so forth. You know, you had to have somebody who was capable of uh, organizing and provisioning a force that could use these things before they would have any effect. You know, simply, uh, like if you if you had brought guns over in say the 1100s, they wouldn't have been nearly as effective because they wouldn't have been used in the the most efficient way because that sort of organizational technology did not exist. So um, he talks a lot about that uh, through the Muramachi and into uh, the Sengoku periods. So I particularly enjoy reading this uh, this chapter because it's very relevant to the type of work I do but um, you know I, I think that's a good way to you know it's a, it's a good uh, chapter along with the rest of the book to see all these things that went into what became the Japanese state leading into the Edo period kind of how you know the political economic social and military factors all uh, converged together to, to bring us what we what we eventually had so that's it. Okay. Well, anyway, well, I just wanted to to add, kind of going back to it just a tiny bit, that um, I neglected to mention that Amino is a medievalist, really. So his real focus throughout the book is the Kamakura and Muromachi periods. Although I think that a lot of what he's saying is very relevant for you know everything from uh, Nara or even Asuka, you know, up through Edo. So um, I just wanted to kind of add that if people are thinking it's very vague, rethinking Japanese history, that could be you know, any or all periods. It's really mostly medieval, but um, I think it's very applicable for anybody studying, you know, anything in pre-modern Japan. So anyway, moving on. So my second book is um, Performing the Great Peace by Luke Roberts. Um, yes, I'm promoting um, Luke's book, but um, I really actually quite enjoy it. It came out in 2012. And it's Performing the Great Peace, Political Space, and Open Secrets in Tokugawa, Japan. And this is another book that I think, kind of similarly to Amino, even though it doesn't necessarily seem like it on the cover, I feel like this is, for anybody studying the Edo period, I feel like this is a good, almost a must-read in terms of breaking our assumptions or questioning our assumptions in terms of giving us a new ground-level kind of foundation for talking about a lot of things. So he... I guess the, the the main overarching theme of this book is um, this concept of uchi and omote that both language and also just I don't know concepts in the Edo period and Edo period uh, political culture, particularly in terms of the relationship between the shogun and the daimyo or the daimyo and their retainers. Mm-hmm. A lot of other scholars have talked about that there were sort of hidden secrets or that, you know, the daimyo were faking things and they weren't telling the shogunate the truth and like that. And um, Roberts really goes into 
trying to explain how this was actually a, a, an understood and expected part of the system and that it was not um, it wasn't really devious you know it wasn't really going against the system as much as it was just kind of built into it anyway but you know there's been a lot of discussion Mark Ravina is another major person who's been talking about like what does it mean to be a Kuni is is a is a domain is a Han sort of thought of as being a separate country or is it really just part of a part of the shogunate part of part of a unified Japan and Roberts kind of kind of answers that but also kind of complicates that by explaining that the word kuni, for example, along with many other words, means different things depending on who you're talking to and where and you know within which it, within what what context. So um, I just I think it's a really good book for that kind of purpose. Um, and he talks about you know daimyo who re, uh, reported their death as being you know a year later than they actually died and things like this for the purposes of you know fitting into shogunate policies about adoption. Um, you know, and about naming your heir, things like that. So, in all of these respects, and just sort of understanding the basics of the uh, the Bakuhan relationship, the shogunate domain relationship, and things like that, I think that uh, performing the Great Peace is really kind of an essential thing. Um, he also goes into the idea of the domain as the household, which was new to me. I'm not sure if that's brand new in this book or if someone else has already argued it, but it really helped me kind of reconsider. You know, the domain is not a state in the sense of a public governmental, uh, I don't know, the way we think of a nation state today. He suggests, Luke suggests the idea of um, the domain as a whole being kind of part of or an extension of the Lord's household. And so when we talk about things being done, quote unquote, privately within the domain and the shogunate not interfering, it's really a matter of the shogunate saying, manage your own household. Um, and so, and it also just sort of helps us emphasize the idea of the sort of samurai society being organized around a household, around an EA. Right, right. Right, rather than trying to shoehorn it into more modern or more, I guess we'll say modern concepts of, you know, the state and how states interact. Um, and then I guess the final well, two more final points. Basically, one, I think that, you know, I actually, I'm thinking about even assigning this. If I ever teach like a general historiography seminar for everybody, for Americanists, for medievalists, you know, I think I, I might um, assign this because it's a, a great book that had helping you remember that all documents, all primary source documents need to be understood within the context of who wrote them, for what purpose, you know, for what audience. Um, so that's definitely one more point. And then the final thing that I'll just say about um, performing the Great Peace is I think this has kind of come up before. Uh, Nate was talking about how, um, you know, basically everybody in Japan emerging was citing Amino and sort of citing each other. And you can see, you know, certain concepts coming up. And in here it's, you know, very kind of here and there in, in small ways. Roberts talks about a lot of things that were new to me that seemed to seem to me to be reflecting kind of a new understanding. Um, and he's just sort of synthesizing in that respect a lot of work that other people have done. Um, for example, in terms of the way that Shinto and Buddhism were related in the Edo period. Um, and he just he explains it out um, really nicely in a way that I have not seen it explained out before. So there's a lot of good, just kind of basic, like, you know, if you want to talk about the Edo period and you don't want the real core foundation of your knowledge to be uh, somebody like Sansom or, or Hall, who's, you know, fantastic, but also out, uh, somewhat outdated. This is, I think, a great 
kind of foundational book for understanding a lot of things about the Edo period. Yeah, it's on my my list ever since I, I saw him do the presentation back at the uh, this is the AAS conference. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, a lot of interesting ideas in there. Right, I, I have it on my list as well. As a matter of fact, I, I have it sitting right here. I just I have a long list, so I haven't gotten to it yet. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I read his uh, I, I read his other book on uh, mercantilism. Well, yeah, yeah, I read his book on mercantilism. Was it mercantilism in a something domain a long yeah. time ago? Mercantilism in a Japanese. I still haven't actually read it myself. So yeah, and I mean, you sure, you want to you want to announce that to the to the <laughs> internet? I, well, you can cut it out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for I'm such not a sure that Luke is listening. So. <laughs> well, for such a uh, sort of a what what one would would assume is, is such a dull topic, you know, the, the sort of the mercantilism of, uh, of, of Tosa province. It was actually really interesting, really well written. So I'm, I'm sure this is even more interesting because it's a little more pertinent to sort of thing I'd be interested in. Yeah. I mean, it's my hypothesis for my, uh, sort of scattered description, but, uh, you know, terms like political culture or, you know, um, it's, I guess it could sound pretty dry, but it's actually a really good – and the other thing I really like about the book is that he – in the course of making these arguments about sort of conceptual, structural kind of things, in the course of doing that, he provides some really vibrant um, you know, individual examples um, and just really you – know, he spends an entire page at one point on you know, Lord so-and-so who was trying to adopt uh, an heir, but he, you know, he couldn't because he was already dead, uh, but – Right. You know, the shogunate needed him to be, but the policies, whatever, needed for him to be alive in order to name his heir, so they pretended he was. But, you know, so he goes through a lot of really good examples, too. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to know something about, uh, you know, Tahara domain and uh, its struggles with uh, the neighboring domain, you know, he, he uses some very, uh, very nice, thorough, specific examples to, uh, uh, to illustrate his points. Cool. Yeah. So I guess uh, since we're since we've kind of run over a little longer than expected, why don't we just uh, sort of throw out a few more books uh, that are, are should be of note and uh, leave it at that. So I guess since uh, why, don't, why don't you go first, Travis? What's a, what's any other books on your list, and then just give a really brief uh, rundown? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tour of Duty by Constantine Vaporis came out a few years ago, and it is sort of the the book on Sankin Kotai, on the alternate attendants. Um, he goes through just really wonderfully detailed, um, you know, exactly what routes they, the samurai traveled in to get to Edo, where they stayed along the way, etc., etc. Um, the next book, which I was going to mention, I noticed happens to be by, by Vaporis as well, um, just by chance. But um, Voices of Early Modern Japan just came out just a few months ago, and it's basically just a compilation of primary source documents, like this is really the kind of thing you could take excerpts from to assign to your undergrad readers, undergrad students, um, and it's just a compilation of translations of primary source documents from the Edo period on various kinds of uh, aspects of daily life. So that's Voices of Early Modern Japan from Westview Press. And um, I've also just finished reading uh, Tim Screech's new book, uh, Obtaining Images, which is a wonderful summary overall of Edo period painting. Um, and in the course of sort of providing this overview of Edo period painting, he goes into some really interesting sort of conceptual arguments about the way that um, 
images and objects functioned to produce sort of political symbolism and meaning. Um, I like that. So I guess I'll leave it at that. Okay. How about you, Nate? Um, well, uh, just recently reread, reread uh, Thomas Conlon's State of War, uh, where he talks about uh, warfare and the, uh, the social and uh, political uh, climate of 14th century Japan uh, and and kind of how warfare was was enacted and why <laughs> they they fought. Uh, that's a little bit older. It's from 2003, but it's a great book to understand that period uh, and also how you know different uh, how it's not warfare in the same way that we consider. Uh, the Sengoku period, or, or at least the later Sengoku period, where we're looking at uh, Nobunaga and Ieyasu and all those folks as uh, kind of almost independent countries uh, fighting among, amongst each other. Um, the you know he does a really good job of of explaining how um, uh, the tension between you know trying to consolidate your own you know political and economic position with maintaining it within this larger, older historical framework of, you know, there's an emperor and there's a shogun and then there's, you know, different um, authority systems that you kind of have to fall underneath in order to be uh, legitimate. So that's really good. Um, and then the, the book I'm reading right now uh, is by David Spafford, uh, and it's entitled A Sense of Place, The Political Landscape in Late Medieval Japan. Uh, and it's, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm only about halfway through it right now. Uh, it just came out, uh, this year, as a matter of fact, in, uh, August of 2013. But it's a, it's, it's really good, and it, in, so far anyway, I mention it with State of War because it's like it's a continuation of State of War, where State of War kind of goes through the, uh, 14th century. The, uh, Spafford's book picks up with, um, from about 1455 uh, up through, uh, I guess he goes all the way through the early part, uh, well, I say early part, the uh, pre-Nobunaga part of the, uh, the Sengoku period. But it's, it's really doing a good job of explaining kind of how, kind of covering that, that middle empty ground of where, you know, okay, well, we understand how the, the Ashikaga came to power and what was going on in the, in the, uh, the wars between the courts in the 1300s. And then Ashikaga Yoshimitsu comes in and everything gets settled and boom, we're good. And then we know that there's an Onin war that takes place and just kind of, you know, after that, oh, there's mass chaos. But this, he, Spafford actually does a really good job of, of kind of explaining why there's chaos because you go from, you know, the, the, this the this that I described when I was talking about state of war, where you know there's these lines of authority and uh, precedent and tradition, and you know yes you have local conflicts, but each side of the conflict is trying to get themselves justified by some higher authority in order to you know be on the right side of the law, so to speak, when they go take land from their neighbor, and then you have you know. By the time the 1560s, 1570s are rolling around, this really doesn't matter anymore, and it's just, okay, I'm stronger than you, I'm taking you over. Spafford, so far, is doing a really good job of explaining how you get from one to the next, to the other. Um, so I haven't quite gotten to the end yet to see, 
how he brings it all the way through, but um, it's, it's really interesting. He focused his study on the Kanto area, um, specifically the Kanto or, or the, the Kanto uh, Kubo um, or Kamakura Kubo, uh, who later becomes the Koga uh, Kubo, uh, and, the, uh, and the conflict between them and the Uesugi, who hold the title of uh, Kanore, and how you know the Kamakura office was a, a kind of a delegated authority from Kyoto, but pretty much had autonomous authority for running the, uh, the Kanto, and then there's this split between them and their deputies, and so the deputies are reporting back to Kyoto and assuming the mantle of authority from Kyoto, whereas the uh, Kamakura office, the Kamakura Kubo himself, still retained his own authority. And so you, you almost have like a microcosm of the same type of conflict that happened before, where you've got these two competing authorities and everybody in the Kanto is lining up to be on one side or the other uh, so that you know they can win and then gain from the losing side and, and so forth. So it's, it's just, it's really interesting. Um, but it's, it's kind of hard. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a thick book to get through, um, but uh, good stuff. Can I, can I mention another book just really quick? Sure. Sorry. Um, a brief history of Japanese civilization, which is actually the textbook that we're using for the course that I'm uh, TAing for right now. Um, a brief history of Japanese civilization, um, edited by uh, Conrad Shirakawa, uh, David Worry, and Suzanne Gay. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting because it, it feels like it really ought to be a 20 or 30 book, a 20 or 30 dollar book, which would make it super uh, recommendable. It's for, it's extremely unfortunate that it's over $100 just because of all the picture uh, pictures in it and the rights. But in any case, it's a really like light, thin, kind of fast read book on, you know, the entire history of Japanese history. Um and with a lot of sort of arts and culture elements included. And it's, it's the fourth edition published in 2013, so it's totally up to date with a lot of the kinds of things we were just talking about, you know, drawing in uh, the latest uh, uh, scholarship. So I just wanted to throw that in there also. If you okay. can manage to find a copy that is actually 20 or $30 and is not the stupid price of 100 then I, I would very much recommend it as kind of a a nice cheap um, like a really good place to start you know right um, if you don't if you're really just starting out and you don't have uh, and you don't want to sit and read all three volumes of Sansom or whatever this is a much more up-to-date and much more concise sort of introduction to the whole thing I definitely definitely recommend that you buy it and I definitely recommend you buy it through the Samurai archives yes so uh, okay I got uh, just two also ran so I'll very quickly uh, Mary Elizabeth Berry's Hideyoshi. Her, well, let me, let me put it this way. This book is, unlike her other writings, is, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Useful. Readable. Okay. Readable. <laughs> uh, Sorry. It, uh, uh, basically, I, I've never been able to read anything that she's ever written. I get, I get maybe, uh, a page in and I'm just, I just can't do it. It's just too dense. But, Hideyoshi is very readable, very well-written narrative about the life of Hideyoshi. Uh, also includes a lot of information on Nobunaga. So anyone who's interested in Oda Nobunaga, there's a lot of information about Nobunaga in there. Interesting book, very exhaustive biography of Hideyoshi in English, and probably the only real, you know, probably the biggest biography of Hideyoshi in English that I know of. But uh, definitely an interesting read. It's uh, it covers Hideyoshi's life in, in great detail, and uh, it's it's definitely worth it. Uh, but, you know, I've tried reading other things by her, like uh, Civil War in Kyoto, 
or culture of Civil War in Kyoto and some of her articles. I, I just can't do it. I, I think it's funny that you mentioned that because um, the, the the Spafford book uh, that I'm reading right now, like I said, it's it's great, but it is not the easiest reading. And uh, I, I bring that up again because guess who his PhD advisor was at Berkeley? <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Perry. So well, my my opinions are my own. So there, I've covered you. <laughs> there you go. But uh, anyway, so yes, I, I do recommend Hideyoshi. I, I also recommend, and if we're in the same room, Nate would probably start rowing, throwing rotten fruit at me. But I I, I I do recommend Japan's Renaissance mainly. Well, I, I guess I should start by saying this is, as far as I know, this is the only book or the last book that Kenneth Grossberg wrote. Uh, about Japanese history, and then I guess he just went on to other things. So it's never been reexamined. It's never been really touched on, other than his book. So, uh, you know, academically speaking, it's it's really never been discussed or examined uh, uh, after this. So it, it does have that shaky ground of being like the only book that's really been written without being reexamined. So I can't really speak to the the academic value of Japan's Renaissance, but the book itself is just uh, basically. Very lot, a lot of detail about the Muromachi Bakufu or Japan in the uh, 14th, 15th century, and uh, extreme amount of detail, detail, in fact. And basically, what he does is he sort of, sort of compares it to Renaissance, compares it to Renaissance Europe. So it's sort of his compare contrast uh, between Japan and Renaissance Europe, and it's really interesting. But again, uh, he never took, he never went anywhere with it. It was never examined, and so it's sort of a one-off sort of uh, curiosity, I guess, at this point. But it's definitely worth a read. Uh, mainly, I mention it because I'm sure a lot of listeners are probably familiar with European history more so than Japanese history. So if they want an in, right. this is probably the book to at least get in on it. I mean, he, he does, you know, compare it to provide a, uh, I guess, a point of comparison with European history. So it's good in that regard. Um, and I actually have a copy of the book, so don't completely hate it. <laughs> is this okay. the guy who teaches marketing at Waseda? Or all I know is he no longer. I, I feel like he, I mean I, I looked into it once, and I, I'm you know this is just my memory, so I could be completely wrong. But it kind of seems like he this is his thesis that he published, and then, uh, and then he just went off to do other. He just yes, went on to is. do other things. So. Sure, people that do in, that. That is in fact him. Okay, so there you go. Okay. So yeah, so because this type this. This his thesis really never was re-examined and was never really explored by anyone else and never really debated at all. It, it the academic aspect I can't speak to, but the the aspect of wow, this is kind of nifty is what I can speak to, and it's interesting. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's quality. I mean, if it is from a dissertation, I'm sure it's quality work. I mean, and you know, valid and everything. Sure. So. Okay. Well, I guess that's uh, that's it for another. Uh, episode of the Samurai Archives podcast, and uh, I think this one will come out to uh, split it into two parts. It'll probably be about an hour each, so uh, hey, listeners, you just got a bonus. Anyway, um, we'll call it good for today. So, with that, uh, as soon as you shut this off, go give us five stars on iTunes and have a super day. This is Chris for Nate and Travis. See you next time. Sayonara. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Alright, that's all. <laughs>